and the whole time, like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, like, you know, there's gonna be people who want to move back in there. Screw them. Gentlemen, welcome to Here Movie Podcast. Oh, Here Movie Podcast. Oh my God, this is where my brain is at. We were just talking about Here Movie Podcast ahead of time, so that made me think of that one. But this is indeed a special edition of the Film Find, the greatest movie podcast ever. Assuming you've never listened to a movie podcast before, my name is Adam Portress. Uh, Matt is still, uh, I know he's back from Toronto, so I know because I, I saw him in person, so he is back from that, but he is still rather busy in all of the things that he is doing. And uh, I, we decided, I, I didn't take a week off per se, because I'm still going to go back. We're still going to review Tomb Raider as per usual, but we're going to combine that with a couple other things uh, for next week's episode. But we decided to do this one a little bit early uh, so you guys can get some opinions about uh, the latest movie, Specific Rim Uprising. And you know what? It's kind of almost become a tradition on this show that, it, to me, it would almost seem not like an episode of the film find when we when we talk about movies with giant robots and giant mo- monsters without having my good friend justin mullis on the podcast yet again to talk about as such justin welcome back man happy to be here as always oh man we uh we got a lot to talk about here this is uh so the movie that i think a lot of people did not think would probably happen at some point and we'll talk about a little bit of the history of this movie and all that other kind of jazz and where things have gone uh, if it went in the right direction. Because maybe it did and maybe it didn't. That's why you downloaded this podcast to figure that out from us geniuses. And if you'd like to go back and listen to our uh, original uh, review of, uh, of the first Pacific Rim, check out episode 18. Uh, all the way back uh, in July uh, 16th, 2013. Episode 18 of the film find uh we've come a long way and uh yet also not very long way at the same time (laughs) because there were a lot of gaps in those early episodes but we're getting more on a a regular basis here uh so we thank each and every one of you for uh downloading listening and all that kind of stuff hey guess what man we were actually i think like two weeks ago we were like in the stitcher like top movers category or something so we're doing something right i guess what that means i don't know but <laughs> I take it to just go because like somebody sent me an email just going, we've got great marketing opportunities for you. I'm like, I don't know how little you think people listen, how much you think people listen to this show. But it ain't as big as you think. Uh, because we, right now we are, uh, uh, you know, brought to you by the people that head on down to patreon.com slash the film find and throw a couple shekels our way, man. You guys get pre-shows, post-shows and all that kind of good stuff. And I don't want to announce on this special show. 
uh, that, by the way, Patreon people will be getting early. Most of you will be listening to this on Sunday. Uh, the Patreon subscribers, they heard this on Friday, man. So they had a little bit of chance ahead to get on top of this. And uh, we would invite you to do so as well. So head on down to patreon.com slash the film find. And I'm here to announce now that I am actually going to be bringing back, and perhaps I might get mad in it on it, on, in on it as well, as his time is currently limited with his, you know, uh, teaching and all that kind of jazz. And maybe he can slip in a couple here and there, but uh, we're going to be bringing back the film Find Five. That's where we just talk for five minutes about any particular subject. It may be movie news. It may be just a, a review of something we saw on Netflix or on demand or just a movie that we want to recommend in general. Who knows what it's going to be? It's a grab bag of fun. And uh, that's going to be available. Normally, we put that out on the regular feed, but uh, I've decided uh, to put that out on the Patreon-only uh, subscription and everything. So, patreon.com slash the film find. Get yourself, uh, you know, some new film find fives uh, fairly regularly. I'm going to try to put them up, uh, you know, as often as we possibly can. Maybe three, at least three a week. I'd like to do at least three a week, maybe even more, depending upon what we can kind of do. But check that out, patreon.com slash the film find. And we thank all of you uh, who are there and support us right now, man. We really appreciate that by the way another little thing before we get going um it's not there yet but uh new merch coming soon new merch coming soon so if you'd like to get like a t-shirt or something like that that's cool and if you have a cool idea for one send me an email man the film find at gmail.com we'd really appreciate that as well um yeah so we got a new we got like some reviews on itunes but we're going to cover those in the main episode that's uh coming up in a uh, couple of days here and everything so uh be on the lookout for that and if you haven't reviewed us on itunes we really appreciate that and uh yeah man so let's go ahead and jump on into it here today we are talking about pacific rim uprising let's gee whiz i'm smashing everything over here let's go ahead and take a listen to the trailer Jake, your father always said he wanted you to be a pilot. He said a lot of things. I'm not a hero like he was. The kaiju, they're gonna come back. I'm not gonna be stuck waiting for someone else to come save my ass. Cadets, you better gear up. This is the way the world ends. How'd they get into our world? Someone let them in. Someone from our world. Who is that? Definitely not one of ours. Let's do this. This is your chance to make things right. We're gonna need more pilots. We have them. There are pilots we remember as legends, but they didn't start out that way. They started out like us. This is our time to make a difference. Do you understand? Jaeger pilots! Do you understand? One way to find out. That's what I'm talking about! Cause I wanna get it on to 
long day. What do we do? Y'all remember me? We fight! That was the trailer for Pacific Rim Uprising on this special edition of the film Fine. Uh, here's the IMDb plot uh, review here. Uh, IMDb, as we know, always 100% correct in everything they say and or do. Jake Pentecost, son of Stacker Pentecost, reunites with Mako Mori uh, to uh, lead a new generation of Jaeger pilots, including rival Lambert and a 15-year-old hacker, Amara, against a new kaiju threat. <clears throat> This is uh, directed by Stephen S. DeKnight, uh, most notably, I think, these days of uh, Daredevil on Netflix fame. Uh, written by him, Emily uh, Carmichael. Carmichael, there you go. I don't have my glasses on. Carmichael, Care Center, T.S. Nolan, starring John Boyega, Scott Eastwood, uh, Carly Spinney, uh, Burn Gorman, Charlie Day, uh, Tian Jing. Jin Zhang and many more Asian names I will uh, do my best not to pronounce because uh, I just don't want to look any more stupid than I most certainly already look. Uh, as I said, we uh, we reviewed the original Pacific Rim back then. Now, Justin, you said you've re-listened to that episode. What did we think back then? I don't even remember. <laughs> um, you guys really liked it. Uh, your general consensus from what I recall, and, and it, it's been a while since I've listened to that episode. That's fine. I, I recall that um, the, the the overall assessment was that the movie was fun. Um, that you guys thought that it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, you didn't you there there was a, a lot of pushback against people who were sort of uh, dissing it on the basis that it was just kind of a big popcorn movie, and that you know maybe maybe that had something to do with the fact that they they felt that that was sort of beneath uh, you know. Our, uh, our our now Academy Award winning yes. best picture best director <laughs> Guillermo del Toro the super rare um, combination these days of of best picture and best director that's something we got to take a look that I don't think a lot of people give enough credence to is usually the Academy's very splitty splitty these days one movie will get the best director one movie will get the best uh, best picture and usually getting both of those together a lot more rare than people would imagine. But yeah, um, so but but yeah, you you guys generally came out with the sort of thing that I was like, no, you know, this is this is a perfectly acceptable film for Del Toro to make. You know, um, you know, he doesn't just do art house movies like Shape of Water um, or you know Pan's Labyrinth. He also does stuff like the Hellboy movies or Pacific Rim. So you know, he is he is a man of of diverse talent. So yeah, and I think that was a big thing too. Is that you know. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong on the order here, but this was just post Pan's Labyrinth, right? Um, this was so. So with Del Toro's filmography, he does Pan's Labyrinth, then he does Hellboy Two, mm. and then after Hellboy Two, uh, he is supposed to do The Hobbit. That right. falls through, and then he's supposed to do Mountains of Madness, which is his passion project that he's been trying to get done for years. And that falls through, and so that was when he uh, he took up uh, Pacific Rim, uh, which was a, a project that an old writing partner of his, Travis Beachman, had been trying to get made for a while. So that's an amazing thing when something else falls through, and then you have just like, well, what's my backup plan? Ah, Pacific Rim. 
Mm-hmm. That's my that's my that's my fallback plan. Is this giant, you know, what hundred fifty million dollar blockbuster film? Yeah, pretty amazing to have that as a backup plan. But I th- I think at this point he can do. Now let me ask you this. Now and we'll we'll get into a little bit of it. But uh, the history with this sequel happening and everything, and uh, basically, do, do we know exactly what kind of went down there and why? Because he had it, like he had a sequel ready to go. It, I think he had pitched it to uh, Legendary and everything. But do we know what really went down there? Is it or is that that actually even come out? Uh, no, no, that's that's all pretty much been on the table, and it, it's pretty interesting in relation to this movie, um, especially considering some of the uh, some of the the plot elements of this, which we can we can get into. Um, but yeah, because yeah, Pacific Rim. So the first one didn't do it. it it didn't bomb by any means, but it was considered a disappointment with its uh, U.S. release. And then um, also, actually, it's, it's Japanese release, for that matter, and how it did in a lot of other places. But where it really, really took off was China. Hmm. Um, the Chinese loved Pacific Rim. They, they, uh, my sister was actually uh, living in China at the time uh, when the— when that movie came out and she can testify from personal experience over there that you know, people just went nuts over it. Wow. Um, they were, uh, and so it, it really made all of it, its money in China. And so, uh, you know, this, there was this idea that if, if Pacific Rim was going to get a sequel, it was going to get a sequel, uh, specifically because of the Chinese box office. Del Toro was going to still direct it. He was going to do it. Um, and I believe the original plan was because the first one came out in 2013. The, they were targeting the sequel to come out in, I believe, about 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, about and right. there was rumors that they were going to start shooting in, you know, 2015. What, what happened was um, Legendary got uh, bought by uh, Wanda Media Group, which is a Chinese company. Mm-hmm. And uh, so as a result of that happening, it. it was sort of a double-edged sword because on the one hand it meant absolutely Pacific Rim 2 is going to happen because <laughs> now you're the, the, the people you were who made you all your money are now actually the ones in charge of you deciding what films you make. So you're definitely getting Pacific Rim 2. The downside of this was that they apparently told Del Toro that it would be another year before they could start shooting. Mm. And he basically said you know i'm not waiting that long i have other things i want to do these other things were pacific rim or i'm sorry not it uh, was uh, shape of water mm-hmm. was one of those and so um you know he basically said you know I'll, I'll stay on as a producer i'll stay on as a visual consultant but you guys find yourself a, another director you have my blessing to go do that and they went and found steven denight um to do it but what, what's interesting about this is that uh, what, I, what I think is interesting, and this gets more into what the actual film is about, is, of course, that, uh, you know, Del Toro, again, he's credited on this movie on Uprising as an executive producer mm-hmm. and as a visual consultant. Right. He is not credited as a writer um, or in any way credited for story. But a lot of this film's plot beats are things that we know were del Toro's ideas. 
So I don't know if that's a union issue or a yeah, guild thing. I can but... kind of, I can kind of speak to a little bit of that and, uh, yeah. and and give a book recommendation at the same time. Uh, so there's a movie by Thomas Lennon and uh, uh, Ben Grant entitled uh, "Writing Movies for Fun and Profit with Fun Crossed Out." Okay. Uh, great book about writing movies. Even if you're even if that's something that you're not necessarily interested in, as like like oh I want to be like a movie writer. It's interesting even if that's not like an alley that you're used to going down, right? But if you have an interest in movies and how movies are made and stuff like that, from a, especially from a script-telling standpoint, that's a great one to do. Uh, but they talk about that in as much as um, with that, it, let's just say that you know all the major beats and stuff were his. If enough of it is rewritten... He won't get any credit, and and they may have even gone through it to some degree. I, I can't tell you for sure without knowing, uh, but right. they may have even gone through some sort of arbitration and stuff where they just go, no, we've supplied X amount to this, therefore he cannot have this sort of not even a story by credit. So, like for example, with like the uh, the Incredible Hulk, right? Uh, yeah, that movie was in place. Louis Leterrier directing it and everything, and it was written by a couple of guys. But Edward Norton came in and did like a pass on the script, and they said, "Okay, here's all the things. It's a big giant Marvel movie and everything, but there are certain things you cannot touch. You can't touch the characters. The characters all kind of have to be there because you know the ball's rolling at this point, right?" And you right. can't change any of the major you know action set pieces or anything else like that. But he came through and basically did like almost a rewrite of the entire dialogue. But because he didn't change X amount, like some, a certain percentile or something, Edward Norton gets zero writing credit for that movie, despite he practically rewrote all the dialogue, just because okay. a certain number of things were already in place. Uh, so it, it works that way, and it works the opposite way, to where they can kind of, if they change enough stuff, they can basically, quote-unquote, write him out, if you will, of, of the actual screenwriting credit. That's my okay. guess as to what happened. I mean, depending upon, you know, like I said, you probably know more about the the Beats uh, idea that he had uh, for this, but they may have just slapped the Beats around enough and changed just enough things. I mean, think about all the way going back to uh, the original Alien, right? Yeah. So when they wrote Alien and everything, the first thing, and this is this is screenwriting and business bullshit that they want to do, right? Is the when they came in and they gave it over to other writers to go to redo it and everything, first thing they did was change all the character names. Now, why did they change the character names? Did they have to change the character names? Of course not. But if they changed the character names, guess what? They can quote unquote contributed more to the story and will be able to get A more money and B more residuals. It's a messed up world, the movies, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because everybody's trying to it's like, there's no reason you need to change the names of those things. I do it because I want more credit. And that's, you know, it happens. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we want to get into then like the actual plot of this film sure. and, um, and and talk about that. And, and so from as I'm, I'm going to say it, even though I'm sure everybody that listens to this show knows it, which is. You know, spoilers from here on out. Exactly. Um, <laughs> this, especially so, like an episode like this, we will spoil everything from the first Pacific Rim to this one as well. So you have been warned. Yeah. So, so, so to, to finish up that thought, the the three, the basically the three or four things that we know for sure that Del Toro contributed as far as story was. Um, so we there's a 2014 interview with him that I believe he did with MTV. There's also one with Charlie Day. Um, and from those two interviews in 2014, we know that 
two of the the big plot points for this film that del Tor- were del toro's ideas was that he a wanted um kaiju jaeger hybrids mm-hmm. and the other one was charlie day was going to be the villain in the second movie okay so we know both of those um were his ideas um and then the other thing is that I also have seen an interview with Denight where he has said that the original script that he was given, which I assume was Del Toro's, um, had Charlie Unum's character from the first film, Raleigh, as uh, as the main character throughout the whole thing. And it was about him and Mako training this new generation of Jaeger pilots. And then unfortunately, because of all of the scheduling delays with when they were going to start shooting Uprising, um, Charlie Unum wasn't available because he was making that ill-fated king arthur movie well first of um, all <clears throat> I, I listen i think we all won because uh, i don't think charlie hunnam can like act his way out of a wet paper sack uh yeah. I, I don't know why he's uh, again it sounds like an asshole thing to say i don't know why he's famous he's just not i've not seen him in anything good if you have if female uh the film find at gmail.com email me i don't know a lot of women seem to think he's attractive. Look, he's so. he's not an ugly, ugly man. I don't even think he's that attractive, though. Like, he's good-looking, but he's not like, oh, boy, there's something about that. But he's just, he can't act for nothing, so I don't get it. <laughs> I'd rather but have, any- Steve Buscemi's ugly as shit, but man, he can act. <laughs> Fair point. Um, but yeah, so apparently, uh, once they knew that they weren't going to be able to get Charlie Unum back, um, Denight has said that he went back to del toro and he was like what do we do our main characters a wall and and it was del toro again who came up with the idea well what if we um what if it was uh pentecost's son Mm -hmm. right uh idris elba's character from the first film his son like he has this estranged son that we don't know about um and then we introduce him and so then it becomes about his arc you know and kind of like his redemption and then that's where John Boyega comes in. And and I, I agree with you insofar as I think John Boyega is a tremendously better and more <laughs> likable actor yeah. than Charlie Unum. So I, I like having Boyega as the lead in this film uh, much more than than Unum, though I don't have I don't have anything against him, uh, you know, obviously from the first film. But, you know, I. I you know, he's not like I agree with you. He's not the he's not the strongest screen presence. No, he, he's cardboard cutout and like and if we're going to get like uh you know, a kind of more uh just stoic white dude and stuff, I, I gotta say, putting an Eastwood in there, not too shabby. Yeah. I I I think he's I think he is a uh, he's a he's a far more charismatic guy, you know, and I I think and we're just now starting to see Scott Eastwood's, you know, star start to rise. He's been in stuff plenty. Mm-hmm. But now we're really starting to kind of I think this is going to be the first thing that really starts putting him in in people's eyes a little bit more, you know? Yeah. And uh we'll we'll talk about his possible future at the end of the show. <laughs> But yeah, so you know, those are the those are the things that again we I, we know for sure were were Del Toro's contributions, and I think that they are in in fact some of the mo- most interesting and uh, uh, promising parts of of this film overall. You know, with those with those kinds of plot twists. So yeah, we got. exactly. So w- the movie starts out essentially it's ten years after uh, the original movie. The war has been over and everything. 
They're kind of in a in a in a society that's kind of halfway halfway built up from you know what had previously happened. There's still parts of the world like you know on the coast and stuff like that. They're a little bit more kind of in shambles and everything. And John Boyega is basically doing his uh his best Ray from Star Wars, going around and <laughs> and stealing all the kind of uh, little kaiju stuff and selling it off for uh, uh, times in a in a homeless bachelor pad. Yeah. Doing some squatting, which, yeah. by the way, I would I would totally be a squatter if I was like if that was the kind of thing. And they were just like, "Hey, half a mansion's better than living in a crap apartment." I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, and and yeah, I mean that's that's where we open up. But you know, he's right. So he gets he gets mixed up with this uh, this like fifteen year old uh, girl Amara who is um, an expert hacker. She's built her own. Uh, Jaeger from scrap. It's a, a very little tiny Jaeger, and there's sort of this opening action sequence where, you know, she's operating this this illegal Jaeger, and they get uh, another one uh, comes after them, and uh, they end up both getting arrested, and so then that this is where uh, Rinko Kakuche's character of Mako from the first film she comes back in, and she basically tells Jake she's like, look, you're either going to prison. Or you can re-enlist in uh, the the Pan Pacific Rim Defense Corps and uh, help me train future Jaeger pilots. Ah, and that so, old gambit. <laughs> yeah, I lo- so, I love that kind of stuff where it's just like, look, you can go to the brig, or you'll join us back up again and do the best damn thing you've ever done in your entire. Life. I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and so you know he ends up making that choice, and so he's he's in there with. Uh, Scott Eastwood's character, who's uh, Lambert, who he's he's got a kind of a, a rocky past with, apparently, though um, that never really gets uh, fleshed out. And then in uh, and, and the first half of this film, anyway, the, the big thing is the fact that we we learned that. Uh, so there's, there's a, a Chinese scientist by the name of Xiao, who's played by uh, Tian Jing, who is. Uh, um, this this is the first thing that I've I've really seen her in where she had like actual lines of dialogue and actual things to do because she was in Skull Island but she was just kind of she sort of just stood around in the background in that film. Oh. And uh, I never saw Great Wall, which she was in. So yeah, that was um, one that was one of the few we've skipped on this program for some reason. But um, but yeah, but she, so she she plays this scientist who she's basically designed um, drone. Jaegers with the help of Charlie Day's character, science scientist character Newt from the first film, and she's trying to trying to implement this that this is a safer, more effective way to to operate Jaegers as drones than this whole thing of having to train people, find people who are are drift compatible. Because if we remember the mythology from the first film, the whole idea is that in order to pilot one of these giant robots, you have to have two pilots, and they pilot it basically telepathically but the thing is that they have to have a complete mind meld so you have to have two people that are just absolutely in sync with one another mentally and that's that's a hard thing to find it's such a wild and crazy thing that like that that i can almost really applaud del toro for doing in the first one because it's like it almost just doesn't make any sense but it is like one of those stupid things of just like well, no, one person's not strong enough to do it by themselves. Like, literally that one line, you just go, ah, oh, well, that makes sense then. 
Yeah. It, it, it doesn't, and it's dumb. And the great part about, you know, with, with the scrapper at the beginning is he's just like, oh, well, I'm going to be the other one. She's like, no, this one's small enough. I can do everything by myself in it. It's no big deal. And I thought that was really great design on this kind of, you know, proto Jaeger that's like, you know, what? maybe a quarter of the size, maybe even an eighth of the size of like an actual one. Yeah. And the the rolling around and everything and how the inside cabin and stuff still stays upright while it rolls and everything. Such really, really great designs on, on that robot and keeping things kind of fresh and new for something that could have been, I think if you leave it in, in, in worse hands, uh, could have been just almost a real repeat of what we saw the first time. And honestly, that was my biggest fear for this movie, was that it was going to be a lot of the same, and it's really not. That's what I was shocked about. Yeah, no, it, it's in a lot of ways, like narratively speaking, it's it's a very different movie than the first one. Um, you know, and, and that's one of the things about this is that you know, I know I know some people that when, you know, there was talk about there being a Pacific Rim 2, you know, some people seemed confused about the fact because they were like, well, didn't they, they they won at the end of the first Pacific Rim? Like everything was, was <laughs> Have you finished. ever read a comic book, you dummy? <laughs> right. <laughs> they come you know, back the next week. <laughs> the Joker yeah. breaks out of Arkham Asylum. <laughs> yeah, well, and. and well, I, I think there's even a point to that because I, I I like the fact that you bring up that thing about the Joker, um, because as I was going to say that you know one of the things about this genre about you know kaiju movies or oh, this, yeah. this sort of Japanese superhero inspired sort of thing is that it lends itself very well to serial storytelling where you know there's always another installment there's always another six episodes because you're doing that kind of monster of the week thing where you know the, Yes, you'll cancel the apocalypse and then you'll keep canceling it because it's going to keep happening. Yeah, how many and, times did we do that with uh, with with Judgment Day in the Terminator series for crying out loud? Exactly, but but I think it's interesting that you you use the the Joker example because that is absolutely true about comics. But I almost think that you know because what people have become more accustomed to are the superhero films now um, that this is. You know that that's almost something they're they're still not used to because even in like a lot of the Marvel movies and stuff, you know, with the exception of Loki, you know, they have this bad habit of killing off all of their villains at the end of their films. Yeah, while it's still kind of in the air, we've yet to see another Red Skull, which I'm like super sad that that hasn't happened because I, I love that, thought that was great. And yeah. there's, you know, we, we won't, I can promise you, we won't have another abomination coming in. It's just like, when they're gone, dude, they're, they're pretty much gone, sadly. Yeah, you know, and I, I haven't listened to um, your you guys' uh, HMP episode for, for Black Panther, but I know a lot of people that were really disappointed by Michael B. Jordan's character being killed off at the end of that film. Spoiler right, now that is def that's definitely one, though, that I think, uh, of all the ones that we've seen so far, Sans Loki, of course, uh, yeah. could come back, and that will, and I think that may get people into the comic book uh, mindset of, oh yeah, by the way, no one ever really dies in comics. Like even even ones like you know even ones like that have been dead for literally you know decades have come back. Yeah. We, we've had a dead Robin come back, everybody, after thirty years. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like it can happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's just comics for you. 
but yeah, so th- th- there's definitely, but get, getting back to this, there's definitely something about this genre that really does lend itself well to to serial storytelling and the fact that you can you can hit a lot of the same sort of plot beats but do things that are very different with them. And we do get to see that um, in this film with a lot of the stuff that they do differently, like the, like the kaiju-Jaeger hybrids and... Um, also, you know, the, the kaiju that we get at the end of this movie pull this kind of classic uh, Ultraman-inspired move where they fuse at the end into one giant kaiju. So, um, yeah, let, let's talk about the let's talk about the uh, the, the the kaiju wear, wearing Jaeger, which, like, honestly, mm. I thought was like a brilliant move because so when when it comes out and everything, all we know is that is that a Jaeger emerges from the water, which, by the way, that should be tip number one right there. Yeah. <laughs> because they all, every kaiju that I that you've ever seen, by and large, are coming out of either water, ice, or some sort of molten lava or something like that. They all, yeah. It's all one of those things. <laughs> they all hide out in something like that, some volcano or some ocean, whatever. And so that should have been tip number one, but... So this Jaeger comes out and just starts kicking the crap out of everybody. And I'll be frank, I you know, because I, I specifically stopped watching these trailers because I just didn't want to see anything. Yeah. Uh, so I had no clue. And uh, but the fact that it's just like, oh yeah, by the way, <laughs> there's a kaiju inside there. I was just like, what a cool idea that I did not see coming at all. No, and that was even though I knew going in that this was one of the pre-established plot points that del toro had i was not expecting that with that particular jaeger i really thought that that was because and and because this gets into something else as well um which is you know because this movie if if i have one major criticism about this movie it's that for a film that's that's two hours long, which I applaud. I, I think that that's very, very good that they keep it very economical and that it's only two hours and they don't mm-hmm. go overboard. Um, but for a movie that's t- only two hours long, they throw out a lot of plot threads that never get picked up on okay. or that ne- nothing ever really happens with. And like so one of them and, – and maybe they do that on purpose. Maybe these things are intended to be red herring because like one of the things, for example, is you know that – uh, Eastwood's character mentions the fact that like his co-pilot for Gypsy Avenger has left and gone to work for Shao. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and I think that that's supposed to be him, the guy that you see like very briefly, who's in like the all white suit, who's working with Shao and Newt in that one scene, um, yeah. you know, trying to pilot the drone Jaegers. And so like when, obsidian fury the the evil black jaeger first shows up i totally expected it to be his ex-pilot i thought that it was going to be something like that so mm-hmm. when it wasn't and you know they eventually you know rip obsidian fury open and there's a kaiju brain inside like yeah that took me by surprise but at the same time i at the end of the movie i was kind of like well what happened with his partner like did he i guess he just left because they had more money at shall yeah i i didn't even think about that possibly being a red herring as to saying that that's what you know the the water merging kaiju was but i like that idea that's not something that crossed my mind i guess but uh no i i think that totally works as something that could just be there to 
throw you off the scent of thinking that that's what's inside there. And by the way, I love when we open that up, like at the initial one there, he kind of rips the rips the head off the thing. And essentially, it's like what's inside of a Dalek. Yeah. I, I thought that was super cool, too. I was just like, I don't know if that was specifically a, a slight reference to some Doctor Who stuff. Maybe, maybe not, but it, it seemed that way to me, and I liked it. Yeah, there's definitely, um, I mean, just like with the first Pacific Rim, you know, I know one of the things with, with, with Denight was the fact that, you know, he's the, he's the same age as Del Toro, and he's talked a little bit in some of the interviews that I've seen with him, not not as much as Del Toro because Del Toro likes to gush. Oh, but yeah. He's talked a little <laughs> bit about the fact that, you know, he grew up on the same kind of Japanese superhero shows, the same sort of movies. You know, he is a big uh, kaiju fan himself. And there's definitely little things uh, peppered throughout this film for fans that, you know, you kind of pick up a little bit of an homage here, a, a little bit there. The the whole thing with the, the drone Jaegers when – everything finally goes to, to shit about midway through the film and they they start turning into to kaiju themselves is um, totally, I, I feel like there's no way that's not a reference to uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, famous mm -hmm. mecha anime. Their movie, End of Evangelion, involves this idea of the characters trying to mass produce these giant robots and the giant robots turning on them and they go through a similar kind of weird metamorphosis where they go from looking like normal robots to like sort of hunching over and having these gaping mouths and so that's definitely one of those things where you know i i saw that and then afterwards friends i was with who had also watched evangelion i was like dude that was totally a reference and they were all like oh absolutely like that just visually that had to be like a call out to that kind of idea so there's there's lots of stuff like this in that in this film for fans so um where well while at the same time definitely being its own thing and not getting so heavy into you know homaging other things that it loses its own identity so yeah big referential stuff and and i think that's one of the uh one of the things that i had initially when learning del toro was off this was like if we just hand this over to you know hollywood director number eight right that that could handle it somebody that's really good that you know can handle a big budget thing and everything but may not be the best of you know auteurs if you will uh right. that he that this could just become another smash him up sort of thing right and yeah. i something that i could definitely tell when watching this was like I, I did not know that he was a fan of this stuff but it felt like it to me yeah. it felt like this was a guy who clearly understands what he's shooting here, the type of movie that he's making, and made exactly that type of movie and not the movie that he just goes, well, here's what I think people want. Like, no, 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 no. I made what, you know, I made this type of movie, not whatever movie I think people want to, you know, see. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, that's one of the things that, that has bothered me so far is I've seen, uh, you know, I knew there was a lot of hand-wringing about it before the movie came out where people were saying, you know, oh, if you don't have Del Toro, you know, there to to infuse this kind of film with his aesthetic, then it's just going to turn into, like you said, another generic Hollywood blockbuster. And, and now that the movie's come out, I've, I've seen a lot of people who apparently they've just decided that that's kind of like their their byline for this regardless and and you know i've and you know and i've seen a lot of 
lot of comparisons where they're like, oh, you know, well, without Del Toro, this feels just like, you know, another Transformers movie or something. And it's like, no, I'm I'm sorry, it doesn't. Because for starters, it's visually coherent. Yeah, and I'll say something. I like those Transformers movies, and this is not that. This this is definitely not that. And as much as I like those Transformers for being that smash them up kind of like, you know, when you were a kid and you were playing with two of your toys and you literally just smashed them together and that's how you played. That's what the Michael Bay films are. And I like them for that. This is not that. If you think this is that you're wrong. It's just not, it's yeah, they're very different movies. Yeah, no. And I, I appreciate you saying that because I don't even want, I, I cringe at the idea of turning this into a Pacific Rim versus Transformers, because I think that that's a, a dumb argument to have. Um, but there is a point to be made that they are two separate things and the one is not the other. And, you know, they're, they're done very differently, um, narratively and also visually. Very much so. Very much so that like, I wouldn't even, despite them, like they're giant robot-y things, I wouldn't put them in the same category. They're two very different types of movies and styles of movie to be sure. Yeah. And, and you definitely see that, that, you know. I don't feel like like the night, you know, fell back on some of the kind of visuals that you would see in a Bay Transformers film or a lot of other big action movies. He keeps it within that realm of of, again, like a, a kaiju film or a Japanese superhero film where there are there are certain ways that you shoot certain things. And like in this movie, the best example that I can think of is it will in a lot of ways that whole final fight with the big giant mega kaiju the way that that's handled but you know one of the things that you see a lot in in classic kaiju movies is this whole thing where you know you really pull the camera back Mm -hmm. and you just sort of like frame an action sequence where you can see how much damage these monsters are doing and and he totally does that he sticks with that kind of idea where you know you'll get these sequences and i'm thinking about the one where the one Jaeger with the whip goes in and tries to like, you know, get a grab on the monster and the monster grabs him and just swings him around and the camera pulls back and you get this lovely like daisy cutter kind of shot where he just like pulls him through all of these buildings, you know, and that's, that, that's a very traditional kind of, uh, of shot for this sort of genre where like they just, you know, Whereas in a lot of a lot of Hollywood action films, not even just Transformers films, but anything, you get this problem. I feel where like they want to like stick the camera on the characters, almost like it's a GoPro, and so you're yeah. in that confusion. And all that does is that you know it it might look cool, but it it also that's what I meant when I said earlier it feels visually incoherent because you don't oh, really yeah. understand what's happening. No, for sure. I mean that that's absolutely the case. And I think a lot of this was I, I think he definitely obviously took a lot of cues from the first Pacific Rim movie. And again, this is somebody that knows what he's doing in the style of that thing. And it goes back to like, yes, this is all, you know, uh CGI stuff these days, but it goes back to all, you know, man in suit, you know, fighting and stuff like that. And we went you know, you went all the way back because then you'd be able to see all the cardboard seams and all that other kind of jazz. And you wanted to see everything that was there. And yeah. now we can do that and have, you know, 
a billion buildings go down. And I, I also, at the same time, I it, it's corny and it's a little stupid, but I also kind of like it because it just kind of relieves you a little bit to base, then basically go like, oh yeah, everybody's out in the buildings and they're in the underground things that uh, that protect all the people. So, uh, you know, fuck up those buildings all you want. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's that's always one of the really funny things in, in these movies. And, you know, you feel it in the first Pacific Rim, but... I felt it even more in this one. And, and it's just true about this genre in general, though, because, like, you understand, like, the monsters are here to knock down the buildings, but there's literally a part in this movie <laughs> where Gypsy Avenger is just, like, knocking one building after another I over. I absolutely on top. love that. We, we set up yeah. this gravity gun, if you will, yeah, and then literally just brings buildings to smash it over the head. I was just like... If that's been done before, I haven't seen it, and I loved it. No, yeah, well, it, it it has admittedly become a thing recently, where like for some reason they like to drop buildings on top of kaiju because they did it in Shin Godzilla. Um, yeah, but, but no, but none of them are like grabbing it as like another character no, and no, then smashing yeah, yeah. it on them. That's the big thing. That's what I like. It's like oh, I'm yeah, literally yeah. using this this entire building as a weapon <laughs> against yeah, you. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, he even gets that. I think it's like John Boyega has that line there where he's just like, "How many buildings can it take?" <laughs> so, and and the whole time, like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, you know, there's gonna be people who want to move back in there. Screw them. <laughs> I'm like, I guess your your rationale is just like, you know, well, you all are alive. They'll be know. they'll be happy down in the Morlock caves or wherever the hell it is exactly. that they are. They'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's a lot of a lot of that kind of like dumb but really cool looking stuff in here. I mean, you even you get it with the one too, the Red Jaeger uh, with the swords, uh, Saber Athena. Mm-hmm. Like literally, that one like pulls out these swords and immediately like slices through two buildings. Yeah, for like, like, like no good reason. No reason. It's just called like I'd like to I'd like to partially hold that up and be like, well, they were cadets, so maybe yeah. but at the same time too, like wouldn't you be like as a cadet you almost be more overly cautious with not, you know, destroying stuff because it's not like if you're like an old hat, you just go like, ah, nobody's in that building. I'm just going to do whatever I do. They'll fix it all later. As a new person, you probably be like, "Ooh, I don't really know." But they're like, "Nah, we're just going to make this look badass. <laughs> Screw you." Yeah. Like that that one doesn't have any justification. None. Really. She's not trying to knock the building over onto something. The monsters are on the other side of the city still. It's called they were just This like, is to look cool. Exactly. <laughs> and it so, does. No, it, it totally does. So you know that's that's a big that's a big part of this. So, but I th- I thought that was really good. Now, um, let me ask you this: Were you, what were your thoughts on? Um, uh, well, I mean, again, you kind of already sort of knew, so I guess. Uh, but with with Charlie Day and his kind of like uh, his psychic link or whatever to the organism. Now, do we know where that specifically came from? Because I'm trying to. Because it's been a while since I saw the first one. Um. So, I mean, assuming that it's supposed to be like he you remember in the first movie, he had a brain in a jar from a kaiju and then he gets another one from the the baby kaiju that gets killed. So I'm assuming it's either the brain from the baby or it's Mm. another it's it's another one. It's not it's not really clear where that comes from. But I mean, I was going to ask you the same question, how you felt about it, because I, that's something that I've had a couple people already ask me about. Like, did you accept that 
as a as a logical character progression for Newt. And I've had to say like, well, I I don't know because I expected it to happen because that was <laughs> because something that I sort of spoiled for myself a long time ago by reading interviews way back in 2014. But I, I do um, like the idea, and maybe they could have drilled this home a little bit more, and perhaps that would have then alleviated those questions and thoughts from people. Uh, I, I like the idea that, you know, this thing could have over the past 10 years really been slowly kind of poisoning his mind. It started like perhaps it started out as more of a as a whim or as like an idea to get into the insights or, or maybe it had a tiny little hold there in the first movie. And then, you know curiosity just kept bringing him back to it uh, time after time after time until that basically, you know, enveloped him, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that could have been fleshed out a little bit more, but like, as far as that goes, I mean, I buy it enough if, if, if that's what they're kind of looking at. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of those things where like, you know, I, I sort of like my thoughts about it is I sort of have two thoughts, which is on the one hand, I accept that as a as a character progression for Newt, because you you do get the impression in the in the first film that there is a little bit of darkness to this character because he is willing to do these things that are really risky and really dangerous, like trying to um, drift with the kaiju. And at the same time that he obviously has this this, you know, perhaps misguided admiration for these creatures that are literally trying to wipe us out. You know, I mean, that's that whole, the whole scene where he's introduced is, you know, he, he's rolling up his sleeves and he's got these tattoos all up and down his arms of the different kaiju and, you know, talking about how awesome they are to, to Raleigh, you know, and there's this sort of awkward moment where it's like, you know, he's standing there talking to a guy whose brother was killed by one of these things yeah. who has spent his whole life trying to defend the planet from these things. And this guy's talking about how great he thinks they are, you know? Um, so, so, and, and also, you know, for, for what it's worth, I just, I would, I would want to mention, you know, as obsessive as I am with this stuff, I did go and I read, the movie novelization for the first. Oh film. my God, you are a nerd. <laughs> yeah, and in in the novelization, they do play that up even more, where there is even a part in the novelization where uh, uh, Pentecost confides the fact because it's it's a, an extension of the scene in the first film where Raleigh kind of like right after he meets Newt and uh, and uh, Burn Gorman's character, he's like, really, those are your your scientists and Pentecost's <laughs> like, I would not employ Newt if I had a choice. He's clearly crazy, you know? Hmm. So, but like, I don't have anybody else, you know, but you know, he's definitely like borderline manic. So like they, they do sort of hint at this idea that this is a guy who could very easily go over the edge. Um, yeah. I, for, I, I forgot about how in the first movie he really was that super gung ho of just like, no, these are super rad. And it's like, uh, yeah, really you shouldn't be, especially like right now you shouldn't be doing that, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so the, the thing about his character development in the, in the sequel here, um, and this wasn't actually a point that I initially made. It was right after we got out of, of the screening the other night it was actually a, a point that my my girlfriend made about it, where she said, you know, she, she said the only thing that disappointed her with Newt's character was the fact that they 
they fell back on this idea that he had sort of become possessed by the precursors, the aliens, and they were controlling his mind because she said, she goes, I totally believe that he would have reopened the rift just because he likes kaiju so much. That's true. It, it could have been that, but I think it was like, for me, it kind of felt like it was just like it, they'd almost tricked him into something that he kind of wanted to do, I guess. Yeah, I, I think I think there's I think there's maybe a happy medium almost in between of just like that that could have been what he wanted and like all he needed was that extra kick, uh, you know, in 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 the head just taking over going no no no, that would be the awesomest thing in the world. Go ahead and do that, buddy. No seriously, yeah. go do it. Because <laughs> and it it is one of those things where I kind of wonder if that was something they sort of oscillated back and forth on with the film because. Because I think when you you have that scene in the movie, like we were already talking about, where like, you know, he's he goes home and you see that he basically is living with this piece of a kaiju brain and having these kinds of like late night, you know, trysts with it or whatever. (laughs) Um, Like that, you know, for me, like that was enough right there that you're like, okay, yeah, Newt's gone crazy. And and at that point when, you know, then you get to the scene where he's like, no, I'm, I'm opening the breach again. I was just like, yeah, of course he is. He's absolutely nuts. Like he he's in love with the kaiju. You know, he wants to live in a world with them, Um, you know. But then they add in that extra little thing where they're just like and he's become possessed by the precursors. But I, I think you have a point, which is that you can definitely also kind of read it as as kind of a almost a, a sort of Judas situation. Right. Like this is something he would have done anyway and and so you know yes he's they've they've infected his mind quote unquote but he sort of let them you know yeah it's it, it's like what we do with a lot of domestic terrorists we lead them to all this stuff and then we just say hey pull the trigger on this thing and then they do and we go ah that was fake we got you we you normally wouldn't have done this anyways but you're a terrorist now because you you know we honey potted the shit out of you yeah so like you know, I I I could see that happening with this. <laughs> that it just goes like, oh okay, sure, that'll be the, and he'll be our conduit into there and everything. I like it. Yeah, no, and I mean, and again, that was one of the plot elements that apparently very early on Del Toro came up with. So I I, I have to believe that that was a thing where even when making the first movie, he was probably thinking about. He was like, yeah, I kind of want to take this guy down this road where he'll he'll end up as sort of our villain. And, you know, Charlie Day does a great job with it. I mean, he plays he plays the hell out of it. So Yeah, it's, I mean, super, super enjoyable in everything he does. And, and again, you're right. It, it, it makes for, for a narrative sense and where you would, you could imagine this character going. Again, I don't think it's something that you look at and then when you hear it, you just go, no, there's no way possible that this could happen. You just go, Ah, that sounds about right. <laughs> that tells you yeah. a lot about the character when you just sit there and you just go, "Yeah, I believe that." <laughs> yeah, he he would have done. Seems that, so. seems like that character would do that sort of thing. Yes, uh, no 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 shock there. So it worked for me. Um, so let's see. What did what did you think about the cadets? Were the cadets strong enough for you? Like to me, it felt like they kind of lacked a little bit of development. I know it's not about them per se, just like it wasn't about like the Russians or whoever the hell else in the first flick. Uh, but they they seem kind of that was a weaker point for me. 
Well, that was what I was I was saying earlier about the fact that like for a film that's like two hours, I feel like it tries to do a little bit too much with its story because you've got all of these different things that are going on because you've got this bit about you know the the uh, you know, uh, uh, Xiao and her drones and you know do we want drones? Do we not want drones? What's Mako gonna do? She apparently has executive power on this issue. We've got. Boyega's character and his relationship with the 15-year-old girl. We've got the 15-year-old girl and her whole thing with the pilots, the cadets. We've got Boyega apparently has some past history with Eastwood's character. And we don't really know um, what that is per se. We kind right, of get some hints, just, but not really. Yeah, there's just there's a lot going on in this film. Um, and and it feels like a lot of stuff sort of just gets gets left by the wayside. And I agree with you that one of the big things is this whole stuff with Amara and the other cadets because th we get a couple scenes with them and they kind of try to establish that there's a relationship there, that there's a dynamic um, because, because they are the ones in the end who end up piloting all of the other yeah. Jaegers into battle. And they clearly want us to feel something about them. They want us to feel like some sort of connection. Cause I mean, one of them even, kicks the bucket you know? yeah and we need to and, and i think that was one of the things that that it, that i feel that it does didn't do as well because the biggest thing is is like you said when when we get them in that in that situation number one is they are still cadets and they're not even like i wouldn't even consider especially because you see scenes scenes that literally tell you as much these are not the best of the best if you will Right. Yeah. These are these are kids that are just starting out and we are to believe that they are then to go on and, you know, the, be the ultimate badasses just when, you know, John Boy gives you a, a great speech. Right. Right. So we don't really get that. We don't really get how they're like if they were like a hey, this is an elite group, best of the best. And we're bringing in this young girl in here. And then that's why they felt that she didn't deserve to be there. That would have made a little bit more sense. And then just try, right. maybe give her character a little something to kind of try to live up to, to be like all these hype people. But those people weren't portrayed as that initially. Not not as like the great people who I would just go, who I would also think, are they the only other fucking people in this entire universe that know that 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 are able to do this ten years? And you're just like, oh shit, you know what we ought to do. We ought to get a couple more kids in here. And we don't even know if they're drift compatible yet. We don't know any of that kind of jazz. So it seemed a little loosey-goosey kind of stuff around there. But you're right. They do so much in this movie. But I think we also can lend ourselves to the idea of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right? Well, it's it's the other weird thing about this being, about this kind of genre lending itself so well to serial storytelling. Because the thing about it is when when you have an, an opportunity to spread a story out either through uh, a series of films like they've done with a lot of the kaiju movies over the years with like Godzilla or Gamera or you've got a TV series like Ultraman or Voltron or Power Rangers or what have you you know you've got a lot of time where you can you know do do your action beats in every episode and then spread out your character development mm -hmm. and when you don't have that much time when you're trying to condense this down into a single two-hour movie you're sort of left with a couple of options and you know in the first one del toro made the interesting decision that he was like well i'm not going to tell you the whole story about how all of these 
these people got here. I'm basically going to give you what happens in the last three you know, days of the war, basically right. like the last two episodes of the show. And we'll establish some of the other stuff through through flashback, through exposition. And I feel like the night took the other approach and the somewhat less successfully proned approach, which was he just was like, well, I'm just going to condense it. Well, and I think and so you get a lot of stuff shoved in here that doesn't really have the, the breathing room that it needs. And I think the cadets are, are the main example of that, like you said. Yeah. Now, I'm going to take a guess at this and, and we'll see. We'll, we'll see in the, in the following couple of years if I'm right on this guess. But uh, like like we said earlier, the first one, not uh, not a failure, but not a wild success here in the U.S., right? Uh, I think with this second one, they're expecting this to be a much more lucrative film because I think the, I think Pacific Rim's gotten a little bit of cachet uh, over the years and everything, and I think at this point they're like, eh, we it's predicted to be the first you know movie to overtake Black Panther in a month, right? Right. So I think they were still going on the idea of. Let's try to see what we can do, get as much in here as we can. If this movie is successful, which it feels like, according to the early box office numbers, it looks like it should be. Uh, mm -hmm. If this movie is successful, I see uh, su subsequent movies going more of that route of stretching these things out and maybe not doing them all at the same time. I feel like this is one of those things where it's like... <clears throat> And comic book movies do this a lot, too, where it's just like, we may never get a chance to do this again. Let's cram everything in here yeah, kind of things where it's just like we may never, ever get another shot. So I'm going to throw a kitchen sink and all and just be like, hope you like it. And uh, with this, I feel like that may be their last go round of doing that. And perhaps, again, I, this is something that I would hope in that the next couple ones, they'll just kind of let it let it rest a little bit. Don't, you know. You've proven that you can do something really well. You've proven that, you know, box office, you know, we'll, we'll take it. People will go see it. And so slow it down a little bit and give us a little bit more. Uh, that's that's my hope, I would think. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I would even say that I I feel like with this particular property and, and what we've said about how, you know, it, it benefits from a kind of serial storytelling, because this is something I remember Del Toro had mentioned too about Pacific Rim is that he would like to actually see it serialized at some point. And I, I definitely think with like the way the, the market has shifted and with what we're seeing going on with things uh, like Netflix and, uh, and HBO and everything, that if you wanted to try to also spin this off into a kind of television series, you could do it. Right, and even with, you know, things of the, which kind of leads me into my next question here for you, is with, like, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all that kind of stuff, we've seen that people want to continue to go to movies in big series of stuff. Yeah. We've, we've clearly proven that out over 18 features with Marvel. The, mm -hmm. the people dig it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Even if they're not even closely related. So that that being said... Uh, because they are all, I don't even know if we've, we've probably discussed this at some point. I don't remember. Uh, but now with them all being under the legendary banner, is there still a possibility of us getting some Pacific Rim inside of like, uh, inside of our King Kong, inside of our Godzilla? 
I, I still don't know about that. I, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more and more open to the idea that anything, anything could happen with that. Uh, because, you know, I mean, obviously legendary has, uh, has sort of this, you know, they, they've got this, this one monster verse, this Godzilla Kong universe that they're working on. And, you know, we're going to get, uh, you know, the next Godzilla movie next year, uh, King of the Monsters, and then the next year is supposed to be Godzilla versus Kong. And then it's not entirely clear what's going to happen after that. We've we've heard some stuff about what apparently Toho's contract with Legendary stipulates and, and what Toho themselves is wanting to do. But, you know, this they, they are a company, Toho is a company that for years has been very guarded about how about who they've let play with their toys basically mm -hmm. and it really seems that in recent years they've they've really loosened up on that and you know um fr from what i've what i've heard which are still rumors because they've done a pretty good job keeping this nope little digital hiccup there I was I was just saying that uh, I'm I'm open to to anything happening as far as like now crossovers I guess between uh, Godzilla and and Pacific Rim just based on the fact that like before I I would have said that would never happen because Toho has always been very guarded about who they let play with their toys um, but you know they they seem to have really kind of loosened up recently um, with with this including certain rumors that are are circulating about things that. Uh, or, or kaiju that may or may not be in a ready player one that comes out next weekend so yeah now with that in mind and stuff let me ask you this uh was it it was japan that they went to right in this movie yes they, the big battle at the end of this movie is in tokyo now now do we all do we think that there might be that made that uh because yeah, let's put it this way uh, in a lot of movies, right, because a lot of Chinese companies are getting involved with a lot of different things, China or, you know, Hong Kong specifically or anything are often, I don't know that shoehorned is the right word, but let's just use that one, shoehorned into the story somehow that we see these kind of, you know, that's just like, hey, uh, you know, we'll... Uh, We'll give it a little extra airtime over here in China if you throw some China stuff in it. And they're like, mm, okay. I mean, Looper is one of those. Right. Uh, do we think that that may also be – could could there be a possibility that they were just like, hey, look, uh, maybe we need to get the Japanese audience a little bit more kind of involved, maybe a little bit more interested in this sort of thing. And maybe that might be something that – all those people just go, hey, you know what we'd love to see? Maybe if you get, you know, your chocolate and our peanut butter, we'll have a good old-fashioned time over here. I I mean, Pacific Rim, like I said before, it, it kind of has a weird thing with how it played with Japan because it wasn't a big hit when it opened. I don't I don't remember how well it did its opening weekend, but it was not it was not yeah. well. But maybe um, that was there like that was my thought. Maybe that's there to maybe placate to them a little bit. I don't know. Well, it was it was definitely a thing where I I mean there were a couple reasons for that. I mean, one was that Pacific Rim was never going to be the number 1 film in the Japanese box office when it opened because it was going up against uh Hayao Miyazaki's last film, The Wind Rises. Well, yeah, so, good luck with that, buddy. Yeah. So, so there was that problem. There were a couple other problems, but the the thing was that even though it wasn't incredibly successful, it was very well 
received. Everything mm. I, I heard from people who were, were in Japan when that movie came out was that everybody who did go see it, which wasn't a lot of people, but everybody who did see it really liked it. And the other thing that's really interesting is, and I, I don't know all the details about this off the top of my head, but a, apparently the Japanese government has something where they hand out like an award once a year for a film or a book or something that's not made in Japan. It's a foreign product, but they which hmm. they believe does a really good job of representing oh. Japanese culture. And Pacific Rim got it for 2013. Well, that's cool. Yeah, so, so, so it sounds like sounds like they were actually a lot like America in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's like the so, people that saw it really dug it, but not everybody saw it. Yeah, so you know, it was it was very well received over there and and they definitely seem to have taken more of a vested interest in some ways in this one because I also know that um one one of the things that's different with this one is, you know, I mean, not only is part of the story well, the, part of the story in the first one was set in Japan. But in this one, not only is part of the story set in Japan, a major part of it, but also like the Japanese companies have got in on like the merchandising angle and stuff because mm. the the like the the action figures and stuff for the per first Pacific Rim were were frankly pretty janky. Um, you know, there was some good stuff in there, but it wasn't it was there was there was a lot of quality control issues across the line, whereas this time they've gotten Bandai to do it. So, oh. And they, you know, Bandai has a very well-regarded pedigree and long history of doing superb work on robot figures. So I mean, for crying yeah. out loud, people, they got like straight up like, you know, the size of, you know, you name it, stores where they're just selling Gundams, right? And then like yeah. I saw, I saw like, uh, th this will tell you about my life. I saw uh, a, 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 like a, a video where PewDiePie, he actually went to Japan and everything, and he went to some big giant Gundam store where they had like a literal life-size Gundam outside of the store and everything. So, well, you see that you see one of those in this film too. There's that. Shot oh yeah, where, like, that's where that's what made me think down. about it. I was just like, oh, yeah. I see. <laughs> like he went to a store that had that. I'm like, so these guys take this shit seriously, dog. Oh yeah, and I mean, oh yeah, and Del Toro was, you know, I mean, he got when when he went over there. I mean, you know, he was on all kinds of talk shows, and they like, you know, they you know took him around and everything, and you know made a big deal out of it. And uh, oh, also, you know, uh, cool, cool. Fun fact, which was, um, what was it, the the 50th anniversary Ultraman series, which came out like two years ago. There is an episode where they go to Planet Guillermo. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, because yeah, they they just it, there was that. There's especially I think people in the industry over there who are still doing like kaiju kind of stuff. Like they they loved Pacific Rim obviously, and they wanted to kind of pay some of that back. And we've seen that a lot. You know, in recent years with, uh, you know, also with Skull Island had a lot of that going on and mm -hmm. obviously Godzilla, needless to say. So, you know, I, I definitely think that Toho has has, you know, sort of opened up to how much potential synergy there can be for them to to kind of like, you know, put their IPs out there as broadly as possible. So. Yeah, absolutely. Let's 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 kind of wrap things up real quick, just because I want to talk about this. Why on earth do you think we have the, in comparison, staggeringly different uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores this go around as opposed to last go around? Because uh, it is not uh, 
it, it, it's rocking pretty low. It's forty-seven percent critics, fifty-eight percent uh, audience as we're as we're recording right now. Whereas the first one was like up in like the seventies for critics, and I think maybe even a little bit higher for other people. What 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 what's going through people's minds? Do you think? Um, I I I think it's a lot of what I said earlier about the fact that, um, you know. This this movie uh, Pacific Rim had a, a strong uh, cult following after um, yeah you know I mean it had it had a strong it had a strong cult following and from from audiences and so uh, and I think critics I think critics respected the first Pacific Rim because it was Del Toro mm-hmm. um, in in fact I actually I actually remember that which is I. I couldn't tell you who the person was now i could probably find it if i went digging for it but i i distinctly remember when the first pacific rim came out um you know one of the few critical outlets that gave it uh, that that panned it was variety mm-hmm. and uh, their their critic didn't like it i think it was justin chang he didn't like it and then there was a subsequent article that was either by him or one of their other staff critics about the film where the whole article was him basically calling out his his fellow critics of saying, look, I understand that you like Del Toro, that you like when he makes films like Pan's Labyrinth. That does not mean you have to encourage him when he makes crap, you know, <laughs> and, and 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 went on to, like, give a bunch of other examples where this happens, where you have certain directors who are well-regarded by the critical establishment and then they do sort of more popcorny or mainstream genre films or they just make a bad movie but yet it's this sort of thing where it's like well we can't go in there and kind of like savage them and be like oh look you know they're an incompetent director because it's clearly not Mm -hmm. you know but but at the same time it's like the critical establishment doesn't want to consider the possibility that maybe the reason why they don't like this film is not that the movie is not well made. It's just that they don't like this kind of film. And, and in fact, I, I saw earlier today, uh, the, the one of the critics for NPR did an absolutely fantastic review for Pacific Rim Uprising where they open up with that, where they're just like, they were like, look, this is a movie that is not for a lot of people who write reviews for movies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just don't go watch this movie. Absolutely, under no circumstances, go watch this movie. If you were annoyed by the trailer for this movie, don't go watch it. And you know, I I I applaud that. I know that that's a very divisive position to take about that sort of thing. But you know, I feel like there's also a kind of integrity there. You know, I remember that was something, um, or or you know, I mean, you know, one of that that's something like a you know, one of our, one of our local critics here in Charlotte, right. You know, Topman, that was always mm-hmm. a thing for him, which is like, he refused to go review uh slasher films because he was like, I don't like that kind of movie. And, and it here's makes a, me uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and I've had words with him over the years, <laughs> which might be surprising to uh, some people, nobody really. Uh, but yeah, even back when, like, I think the first letter I ever wrote him was for his bad review of, uh, uh, what was it? Oh shit! Just escaped my mind here. Um, uh, 
Tom Hanks gangster film, comic book flick. Uh, starts with a P. Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition. There it is. Uh, yeah, he, he he savaged that movie, and I was just like, you're fucking wrong. You're just wrong, and here's why. He yeah. <laughs> wrote him a big letter on account of it, and so we'd kind of had a correspondence going back and forth of me telling him he's wrong <laughs> a couple times every year. Yeah, uh, but my, my whole thing is it's just like if you know if, if you know that for whatever reason, like whether it's aesthetically or morally or whatever, that like you can't sit through a certain kind of film because you just know you will not enjoy it. I think there's a lot more integrity in just saying, you know what, I'm not going to touch this. I'll let other people talk about it. I'm just going to walk away as opposed to, you know, even the kind of stuff that like Roger Ebert would pull where mm-hmm. I think, what was it like Silent Night, Deadly Night? Like they just sat there and like played like the credit list for the movie and just was like shame 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 on everybody <laughs> who made this you yeah know? here's the thing and i'm very much of two minds anybody that listens to this show knows that we go and watch pretty much anything else anything that's out there for the most part uh and there are sometimes too where like you're right as much as i like to say we watch everything there's a couple of things where every now and then i'm just like Boy, I really don't want to watch. I mean, no, uh, the the Sherlock Gnomes this weekend. I just there's not part of me kind of wants to go see it because of that stupid you know nerd that says I'm gonna go watch everything regardless of how shit it is. And there's another part of me that just goes, Adam, you will not get that time back in your life. You will not get yeah. the gas back in your car. You will not get the sanity back in your head. And for the few people that will listen to your podcast that will actually enjoy or hate that review, is it worth it? You have to go. So, like, I, I completely understand that. But at this, so I understand the like, hey man, this isn't my jet. Ja- this isn't my jazz. This isn't what I want to do. And you know, I'll, I'll leave that to somebody else. I respect that. But at the same time, I also am not a fan of like you know certain places, I won't drop names, uh, that will only review like one movie a week, you know, that decide like, hey, this is what I'm going to spend my money on. And let's be frank, if you're going to go every, if you're going to go to the movies every week, what are you going to do? You're going to decide what's going to be the movie that I'm most apt to like. Right. Yeah. If it, if it's just like on a you and me, we're regular schlubs, we're not invited to the, you know, uh, the press screenings or whatever. We just go by ourselves and we pay our own money for it. You're going to go to something that you're apt to like. And I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to review movies that way. Me personally, I want to, and I, because I think you need to go see garbage. I think you need to have those great films, and you need to have those awful films. You need to have your Paul Blart Mall Cop twos. I saw that in the theater, people. It was one of the worst experiences in my entire life. But you know what? I went to do it because it felt like I needed to do it. And let me tell you, I appreciate even crappy movies a little bit more now because because I have seen that garbage. So, it, like, it's it's a tough line to go. Like, the, the, the movie yeah. Love, Simon, it looks so corny and so stupid. I'm just like, I don't really want to go see it. And I'm like, how much, that was one I made a decision on. I was just like, how much will this bring to me? It's like, I feel the same way about Nicholas Sparks films, you know? I'll still go to see him every once in a while, but it's it's a it's a tough thing to to wrap your head around if you're going to spend some time and money. Yeah, so. I know, absolutely. And, and it's like, it's really important to have dissenting voices, right? Like, you don't want 
the only people talking about a, a work of art, you know, being people who are, you know, going to, to gush over it. Um, you know, but I, I think that there's a difference between, you know, again, being like, you know, you can, you can like something, you can recognize that you have a predisposition to it and still be willing to go, you know, well, I have, I have some standards, right. And, and somebody who will go, you know, I, I'm not predisposed to that, but I'm willing to give it a fair shake for being what it is. So, and and that, that's and that's both of those people. Yeah, that's our goal for this show for a lot of times. And, and things have happened to where you just go, oh, there's no way I'm going to like this. And you may not even love the whole movie, but you may pick out a couple of things in it that you're just like, that was worth it. Like, uh, I went to see Matt didn't see it, but I went to see uh, the girl next door, the Jennifer Lopez movie mm. from about a year a year ago, I guess. The movie's awful, or the boy next door is the name of it. The boy next door. Okay. Uh, so uh, J Lo plays like a teacher, whatever, and like this this young kid or whatever wants to like you know get all up in it, and the story is awful. Which by the way, you'll love this. He gives her a co- a first edition copy of the Iliad. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, this is bullshit. This, no. I'm like, look, I got off of, listen, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night, people. You ain't giving first edition copies of the Iliad to your next door neighbor, you idiot. Uh, but that movie was awful, except for the last 10 minutes. The last 10 minutes, they're, they're in a bar and it's on fire and there's a fight. And it's awesome. It's so stupid. And uh, I think a lot of things, other ones that people don't go to, that I think that they're kind of missing out on, is a lot of kind of what I'll just call, for lack of a better term, just like mid-level black cinema. Mm. That's a lot of like, you know, you see them, it's a majority black cast, and they're usually, you know, somebody's cheating on somebody or whatever. Those are, a lot of those are really fun. They're not great movies, but they're a lot of fun. And, and but people don't go see them. Not, I mean, you know, the small audience that it's made for goes to see it. But outside of that, you know, kind of made for audience, usually it's made for, you know, uh, you know, black audiences, usually female, usually within probably like the late 20s to, you know, early 40s kind of area. And no, no one else really goes to see him outside of that. And I think people are missing out because a lot of those movies could be fucking fun. Hmm. So but uh, so I guess what I'm saying is everybody go out and just watch something. Go watch something that, you know, go to a theater and say, what might I never go watch? What I mean, if it's like an art house flick or whatever, you know, go, that's that's what I would suggest is go to an art house because I know there's a lot of people out there that won't go see an art house flick for whatever reason, right? Yeah. Darken the doors. Even if you don't know what it's about, go ahead, give it a shot. I think a lot more people, you know, broaden your horizons. That's what that's what we say here with the film finds. We watch everything. We try to watch everything. Uh, but I, I to me, that's... That just kind of goes out to everybody is just try to watch something that might be outside of your wheelhouse. And I think that goes for critics. I think that goes for regular patrons of the movies. And I think if you kind of broaden your horizons a little bit, you may become more of a cinema fan than you actually even know. So that's where I'll leave that. Boom. God, I feel like I'm just doling out wisdom here. Uh, <laughs> Justin, man, thanks for coming back on. Uh, are you? I I feel like I gotta go ahead and uh, lock you down here. You you want to you want to come back and talk rampage? I definitely want to come back and talk. I was about Rampage. to say I know you do. So <laughs> I, I, yeah, I am. I, 
ridiculously excited for Rampage. Oh, that, that's the new trailer. I saw the newest trailer today, and like, it looks like a lot of fun. So I knew you'd be down for that. So we'll have you back for Rampage and everything. Uh, do you have anything out there that people can kind of take a look at, or? Um, I still got my blog, so you know, go to uh, Man Creates Dinosaurs, which is at Tumblr. I I'm trying to post on there pretty regularly. Um, so, you know, I've got a lot of really great backlogged articles. I'm, I'm going to try and do something, uh, interesting for, for Rampage. I, I haven't had a chance to really throw up anything for, uh, Pacific Rim. Aside from that, um, something else that, that people who listen to this show might find interesting is, and this is, this is still a couple months off, but I did just turn in what are hopefully the last round of, of edits for a chapter I wrote for a forthcoming book on Star Wars. Mm. So um, it's it's called The Force Reawakens. It's a collection of um, essays about the Star Wars franchise using The Force Awakens as a jumping off point. And my chapter in particular, I looked at how uh, we got to The Force Awakens from the perspective of the kind of conflict that's existed for a long time now between George Lucas and Star Wars fans. Ooh. So, and um, you know, like all the changes that Lucas made to the films, how that pissed people off, how people then went and made their own changes to the films. I, I did a lot of really great work. I got to, uh, are you, are you familiar Adam with like the despecialized editions? I am indeed. I got to talk to the guy who made those. So. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, I'm, I'm really happy with that. And so that book should be out before the end of this year so well i'm, I'm looking forward to yeah that. whenever you get a place to pre-order that let me know because that that sounds right up my alley that's for darn sure uh and of course my other uh, podcast here movie podcast here movie podcast.com uh this week we're reviewing the second half of happy on sci-fi so uh go ahead and check that out and of course like i said this show uh, is coming out on a Friday for those of you over at patreon.com slash the film find. If you're not there yet, you're hearing this a little bit later than everybody else. Hey man, why don't you get yourself some good fun in your life and, uh, jump on over there and, uh, help support this show. Help, uh, you know, just keep the servers up and just keep me, uh, keep me filled with a burrito every now and then that's, that's all we ask. And, uh, and of course, like I said, film find five coming back. So please, uh, check that out at the film find, uh, patreon.com slash the film find. We really appreciate that. And we appreciate all of you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to email us, email us at the film find at gmail.com. And Hey, why don't you do, go ahead and uh, tweet Matt Smith. Let him know. Tweet at, uh, I don't know what the hell his damn Twitter is anymore. <laughs> he changes it. <laughs> the fucking time so uh at matt boyd smith i think it is so check all that good stuff out and uh we'll talk to you guys next time yeah, 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 yeah.